Hi everyone, this is Whitney Jennings and you're listening to Minds Worth Meeting, a podcast by Stern Strategy Group. You'll have to forgive me today, my allergies are acting all the way up, but we can still get down to business. The business landscape is hyper-competitive and thanks to technology, is changing at breakneck speed. Executives, directors, and managers are all looking to develop and implement the next innovative idea to differentiate their brand, drive growth, and build awareness for their companies. The problem is, they don't always know where to look or what strategic advice to follow. As a leading speakers bureau and communications agency, Stern Strategy Group has a direct plug to world-renowned thought leaders, executives, and practitioners actively transforming the future of business across industries, disciplines, and the globe. Each season, our network of experts demystifies the rapid changes occurring in technology, marketing, strategy, healthcare, education, and much, much more. Whether you're looking for ways to improve your business model, reach new consumers, fine-tune your operations, or just make sense of artificial intelligence, you'll be privy to the insider knowledge shared in each episode. Amazingly, many of the lessons are just as applicable to your personal life as they are to your business. This is episode 23 of Minds Worth Meeting, and today you'll meet Gary Pisano, foremost authority on growth and innovation strategy for large firms and startups, professor at the Harvard Business School, and author of the new book, Creative Construction, The DNA of Sustained Innovation. Those are the three jobs of leadership, strategy systems and culture. And if I had to put those in any order, I'd actually say it's probably culture number one and strategy number two. And too often they don't set the culture. They, they culture something they outsource, which I think is a real shame. If you're a senior leader and you don't think culture is your number one job, then I think you're probably in the, you're probably in the wrong job. Everybody in an organization has a role to play in this stuff. I mean, strategy alone isn't just done from the top down. Strategy is not a top down exercise. It's bottom up. It's people raising ideas. It's people saying, wait a minute, here's what I'm seeing in the market. Here's what I'm seeing customers do. Here's something unusual going on. So if you don't have a workforce that's really engaged from the bottom up, I don't think you're going to be very good at innovation. If you haven't yet read the January 2019 cover article of the Harvard Business Review, The Hard Truth About Innovative Cultures by Gary Pisano, stop right now and click the link in the show notes. In our chat, he expands on the ideas and research within to show leaders that their strategy is lost without a strong company culture to back it up. Gary also helps me break down the word innovation, which is used so much that it's everything and nothing, as he says, and it remains a struggle for many companies. In this episode, you'll gain a clear understanding of the four types of innovation, and you'll be able to assess which ones may be right for your business. You'll gain an understanding of the research behind the importance of company culture and how it relates to your strategy. And towards the end of the episode, there's a hard lesson for leaders in the financial services industry. It's summertime, y'all, which means it's the perfect time to share Minds Worth Meeting with your colleagues, friends, and family as they vacate the nine to five hustle. I can see it now, a beach, headphones, and Minds Worth Meeting. So please give the gift of a competitive advantage by sharing Minds Worth Meeting so they can download and subscribe as well. And with that, we'll get into our episode with Professor Gary Pisano. Gary, thanks so much for joining us on Minds Worth Meeting. We're we're very excited to discuss your new book and all that you have going on. 
So explain to us what creative construction is and why your book is so important now. So creative construction is a concept about the way established companies can really become and stay transformative innovators. And the title itself is a play on the words, if you will, of the concept of the very familiar concept of creative destruction, which, of course, goes back to Schumpeter. In some sense, Schumpeter was the first real disruption theorist who talked about the challenge that larger companies faced as they got older and more successful and more mature. They lost their their vigor, uh, their uh, innovative vigor. And that's become a, a kind of dominant way to think about innovation uh, over over the, the decades, and particularly more recently, in the last you know, uh, two decades, lots of focus on the problems that established companies have in innovating, but not just the problems, just the almost you know, sheer inability to do it, uh, that, that size is the enemy of innovation, and that if you want to be a, a successful innovator, you have to be a small company or pretend to be a small company. And creative construction really challenges that whole notion. It says actually large companies can uh, do transformative innovation. They do it all the time. They do it as surprisingly much more than folks think. And that it's just become a bit of an excuse for large companies to say, well, we're too big to go out and do transformative innovation. Let's go acquire other companies or let's just focus on incremental stuff. And that's really what the concept is, is about, um, you know, building new trans transformational innovation while at the same time supporting an existing business. So let's unpack innovation a bit. People often have a rather vague idea of what innovation is, and there are a number of definitions floating around, but you say there are four distinct types of innovation. What are they? Yeah, I mean, uh, you've got it on the head. I mean, innovation is this great word that means everything, and it means nothing, and that's the problem. Everybody's been using it in a way that it's, I love innovation, I love innovation, everybody loves innovation. What do you mean by it? And that's where companies struggle, because it means, when something means everything, it means nothing. And then nobody knows quite what to do. And I try to break it down and really simplify it based on my research and research of many others going back a few decades, the, the others who have worked on this, that there's basically two dimensions of innovation we should care about. One is the degree to which the technology is changing. So for a company, how much is it changing its technology base? And the other is the extent to which an innovation challenges its business model. So it's technology and business model. It's just a classic two by two of four types of innovation. Routine innovation being innovation that builds on a company's existing technological competencies and its existing business model. So think about Audi developing a new generation, you know, A8, routine for them. Um, disruptive innovation, which is a term many people have heard, but if you kind of go back to the literature on that and look at what my colleague Clay Christensen is the one who, uh, you know, uh, named that category. Um, some years back. Um, but if you look at what he says about it and what he's continued to say about it, it's really about business model innovation. That's the challenge. So it's not so much about the technological challenge, but that companies struggle to adapt to a new business model. So that's the second type. The third type is what is I call radical innovation, which in some sense is just the opposite of disruptive innovation in that it's all about the technology. So it's fundamentally different for the company's technological base but actually fits their business model. So think about electric cars today. Electric cars are really very different from a technology uh, standpoint from internal combustion vehicles, requires a whole new set of skills, but yet actually is, electric cars fit the business model of the car industry really well. They're cars. You 
you know, and there's no real, even Tesla, by the way, everyone talks about it being a, it's a, you know, new business model. It's not at all. It's a car company. It's once you drive your Tesla home, the fact that it's electric, it's a car, it's a great car, but it's a car. You either buy it or lease it. It's, it's not like car sharing, which is a very different business model. And architectural innovation is the fourth type, which combines both. So that's a very significant kind of a radical technological advance that also requires a very radical change in your business model. So I would think of, say, if car companies started to do autonomous vehicles, but said, rather than selling you the car, we're going to have fleets of autonomous vehicles, and we're going to sell you a car as the service, that would, in my mind, be an architectural innovation. Mm -hmm. Now, are all of these appropriate for every organization to consider, or is it, it just depends on the company? And how do they decide? Sure. So everybody should, uh, hopefully everybody can consider the whole palette. So that's the, that's the menu, if you will. So, you know, you should consider them all, but which ones are right for you and how much emphasis. So in my mind, an, an innovation strategy is about deciding what part of your resources are you going to put on each of these types? And that's where there's no one right answer. So it depends who you are. So for instance, if you're in a, a very mature industry where the technology base is, is kind of fully been exploited for a long time, doesn't offer much opportunity to create value enhancing, value enhancing improvement. Um, and the existing business model is kind of running dry, but you want to grow. Then you may need to think, you're going to have to think about what's outside that routine quadrant. The routine quadrant is like an oil field that you've drilled dry and yeah, you can keep drilling it, but you're not going to get much out. On the other hand, if you're a company like Google and think their core advertising business grows at about 25 to 28% per year, um, with very high margins and has a long way to go and the kind of underlying search technologies are still evolving, then if you're Google, of course, you're going to put a lot of money into your routine quadrant. That's like a rich oil field, you know, one you just discovered and it's, it's full of oil. So pump it. Now, again, even for a company like Google, it doesn't mean you put all your resources there. You don't put all your chips in the routine bucket and they do explore alternatives outside. So they do autonomous vehicles uh, and some of the things they've been exploring around in artificial intelligence and and other areas they call it their other bets so they're trying to hedge their portfolio for longer term growth so it represents a really nice a really nice balance so you kind of do a little bit of each of them until you find which one works best that's one way to look at it yeah but i wouldn't say not every company should do them all i mean there may be companies mm -hmm. i mean think about startups they tend to have to focus on completely outside routine they have to go for something that is going to either be architectural or disruptive or radical because they've got to break into a new market and you're not going to break into a new market trying to outcompete the incumbent on what they're already doing if you're a new entrant i wouldn't want to see them doing routine innovation initially mm -hmm. on the other hand if you are a um you know, if you're a company who's just launched a major new platform and there's a lot there, I'd want to see a lot of the resources in the routine. So I don't, I don't advocate any, there's no general rule. I, I, what I recommend in the book is that you look at kind of industry and competitive dynamics, the technology cycles, your capabilities. The book provides quite a bit of detail on how to think through those choices. You can't really boil it down to a simple formula, but at least you, what I try to do is get to the factors so the company can sort of think about you know, broadly how it wants to shift its portfolio. You write and speak a lot about company culture. What's the role of culture in innovation? And does real even innovation begin with underlying behaviors? I mean, culture is, is huge when, when it comes to innovation. And, and what I try to do in creative construction is give a really 
broad picture of what's required to be innovative. Because I think too often discussions of innovation tend to focus on, you know, everybody's looking for the magic bullet. You know, do open innovation or do this or do that. And what what creative construction tries to do is say, here's a broad framework for there's three basic pillars of an innovative capacity in an organization. You have to have the right strategy. You have to build the right systems and you have to have the right culture. And so those three together drive your innovative capabilities. And if you're missing one, well, you got one of them wrong, you're not going to be innovative. And that's why innovation is hard. So with that said, culture is huge. And without the right culture, you can have a great strategy and great systems. That's like having a com- really beautiful computer with, you know, lousy software. It's not going to do you any good. So culture is really the software of an industry. And sometimes it's hard to um, write down what it is. It can be very tacit, but a, but a culture is really the set of values of an organization and more specifically the behaviors, the accepted behaviors that flow from those values. And so without the right culture for innovation, you know, you, you're just not going to be, you're just not going to innovate. What are some established companies that you've come across in your research that have nailed cult, a culture for innovation and, and do it well and, and do it repeatedly well? One of the um, companies I came across that was, I thought, really fascinating because it's a very large company in a very established industry and it's somewhat conservative, and yet it created a completely new group to do something very different. That was Honda. So, um, you know, Honda set up Honda. Very few people know that Honda got into the light jet business a few years ago, although it was a project they started a long time ago. And that required them to have a lot of persistence over a very long period of time. Um, you know, decades, actually. Um, they're a conservative company. I mean, what I argue in the book is that uh, a, the right culture for innovation, what makes it hard is having this balance between a tolerance for failure and yet having high performance standards. So I say tolerance for failure, intolerance for incompetence, willingness to experiment, but highly disciplined, collaborative, but, you know, high degrees of accountability, freedom to speak up and criticize, and yet willingness to accept the kind of candor, the brutal candor that can come with that, uh, very flat and yet strong leadership. And, and this is a very delicate balance and, and it's, it's very hard. Honda was one of those cases where they, they had, you know, many of those elements that they created in this new, in this new group to do the, to do the airplane project. I certainly think companies like Google seem to have it, Amazon, uh, and Apple, I think historically have had these, these, this, this kind of balance. If, if you look at Google, they always talk about, uh, you'll read things about Google and they talk about, you know, here's a company that really knows how to, uh, has the right culture because they have this high tolerance for failure and they talk about they have celebrate failure and, and all of that, which is true. But also at Google, it's almost impossible to get a job at Google. Okay. <laughs> right. Standards are off the charts uh, for technical positions in particular, almost any position, but the technical positions. And so they're, they're, this is a tolerance for failure, but a complete intolerance for incompetence. It's just a beautiful example. Amazon is the same way. They're incredibly tough with performance standards on people. If you talk to people who've worked at Amazon, it's it's not necessarily a place for everyone. It can be really pretty tough. Uh, and yet it's an extraordinarily innovative company. And one of the things I try to point out in the book is that before you go down the path of saying you want to create an innovative culture, make sure you know what you're getting yourself into. Mm-hmm. Because too often it's posed as like it's all going to be fun and games. We're going to have, you know, we're going to, we're going to have foosball tables and we're going to act like a startup and we're going to be, you know, we're going to dress casually, et cetera. And, and that's all fine. But actually 
it's not a walk in the park and it's more like climbing Mount Everest. And some people love climbing Mount Everest. It can be a lot of fun, but it's also really, even if you're really, really good at it and you really enjoy it, it's really, really hard. It's really hard. And so you have to prepare the organization for that. And too often, I think leaders don't. It gets posed as it's going to be this, this kind of fun thing we're all going to do. And it's, you know, we're going to tolerate failure and we're going to do lots of experimentation and we're all going to collaborate. They're not looking at, I call the real, the other side of it, which is equally important, this balance that, that allows innovation to really succeed. So what's the role of executive leaders in the innovation process? Is this, is, is innovation engineered from the top down or does it begin, does this mindset begin with the worker bees of the organization? Well, it's kind of both. I mean, again, I think it's, it doesn't ever quite boil down to, I think the leadership absolutely matters because they set the tone. I mean, they have to set the strategy. Um, if you don't have an organization which really understands the need to balance and allocate resources to different types of innovation, um, I, I think it's hard to get started. You won't do, um, you know, if you're putting all your money, say, into routine innovation and by default, because nobody's thought through the right strategy, is that if you're a worker bee, as you're calling them, and you say, I've got this great idea to try something new, something transformative, maybe something radical or something disruptive, you have no money to do it. You're going to get frustrated. You're going to leave. So I, I, leadership clearly has, you know, the job of design the strategy, get the strategy right. Build the system. They have to, they have to own the systems and think them through. And they are absolutely critical in creating the culture. Um, you know, that to me is those are the three jobs of leadership. It's strategy systems and culture. And if I had to put those in any order, I'd actually say it's probably culture number one and it's strategy number two. And too often they don't set the culture. They, they culture something they outsource, which I think is a real shame. If you're a senior leader and you don't think culture is your number one job, then I think you're probably in the, you're probably in the wrong job, <laughs> to be honest. Um, and so I think it's absolutely critical to have leadership. That said, I, I, you know, everybody in an organization has a role to play in this stuff. I mean, strategy alone isn't just done from the top down. Strategy is not a top down exercise. It's bottom up. It's people raising ideas. It's people saying, wait a minute, here's what I'm seeing in the market. Here's what I'm seeing customers do. Here's something unusual going on. So if you don't have a workforce that's really engaged from the bottom up, I, I don't think you're going to be very good at innovation. If, if, if you don't have an organization where people are willing to hold themselves accountable for decisions and are always looking to, you know, hide from there and blame others. Um, that's going to be, you're not going to be an innovative company. And so I think it really takes, it takes a lot. It takes everybody. And I know that sounds, um, you know, a bit like a uh, bit impossible, but it, but it's, but, but it's not. I mean, again, I think they go, they kind of feed off each other. The right leadership brings in the right people, creates the right mindset, gives them the right tools, but then, the lower levels of the organization, the middle levels, they have to kind of take the ball and run with it. They're given permission to go. They have to go. They, and, and I've been in a lot of organizations in, in my consulting experience where you'll see senior leaders who are giving permission to go. They are enabling. They are providing resources. And they're frustrated because, you know, from the middle up, they're not getting the energy. People are conservative. They don't want to take the chance. They don't want to. Um, they're, they're, they don't want to propose the new project. And, and, you know, that, that, if you don't have the right folks in the middle, this isn't going to happen. So, um, you know, I, I think it's both the top end throughout the organization that you need people fully engaged. And that's why I hope my book will be read, not just by the most senior leaders of the organization, but by folks in the middle, because what I've tried to do is give them a set of tools to understand what their jobs are. 
So what's the key to breaking down those barriers? Because you mentioned that people are afraid to speak up and speak their mind and put forth new ideas. How does how does a company transform themselves to allow their their employees to have a bigger role in transforming the company? Well, I think this is again where senior leaders can model what's going on and and set the stage and because I think it's one thing where leaders talk and they say, here's, you know, we need everyone to contribute ideas. And then it, nothing happens because folks are watching them. And so then it's leaders actually changing their own behavior in a very micro way, say in the meeting room. You know, for instance, let me just give you a small, a, a, a small example. It could be really powerful. How many, in my career, I've seen many occasions where you'll have a meeting, you'll have a, a, a leader in the room, somebody who's the boss, somebody say hierarchy, higher. And what ends up happening, they start to articulate very early what they see as the preferred solution. And without realizing, and they may just be thinking out loud, they may not intend to do this, but they shut down discussion because others are, everyone in the room is thinking, well, I don't want to challenge them. I, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to modify my thoughts or my comments to fit their trajectory. And you kind of quickly converge to the solution. An alternative is approach for the leader to say, look, I, I'm not going to say anything here. I'm just here to listen. Okay. Ask the question. I mean, that's rather than expressing an opinion, just even if they have a strong opinion, ask the questions and in, in some sense, force debates, create debates, play devil's advocate, get people to realize that particularly early on in some innovation programs, you're, you're at a discovery phase. You're not at a kind of let's, we know what we're doing. In fact, you probably don't know what you're doing. The leader has to show that they're comfortable with that and that, they're almost not just tolerating dissent or wanting it, but they're actually, they're going to pull it. They want debate. They're going to pull debate. They're going to look for that person in the room who hasn't spoken and say, what have you, what do you think about this? If, if ideas are converging too quickly, it's a really good sign. People haven't thought it through or they're sitting on their ideas because they're afraid those ideas are kind of out of the norm. So that's just one small way is that leaders through their daily work, how they can start to change the the kind of dynamics in the organization start to change change the culture just literally one day at a time and i tell people throughout the organization i don't care where you are in the organization you could be the ceo or you could be a frontline supervisor you can do that same thing in your organ in your group your small team of, of frontline workers which is listen you know be, be don't don't be the one who has the idea be the one who's asking the questions and really show your listening even if you're at the end accountable for for the decision and you have to make the decision and it doesn't have to be consensus, but get the discussion going. So you want to hear different ideas and thoughts and, and that can start to change the, the, the behaviors and expectations. I imagine that your message is meant to transcend industries and companies, but have you found given, given the, the broad range of industries that you've consulted with and spoken for and worked with and researched, do you find that it's, more difficult in one particular industry or one or two particular industries than others, given the nature of the businesses and, and maybe the, the red tape that they have to go through policy wise? Well, lots of, so every industry always says to me that their problem is they're regulated. And it turns out every industry is <laughs> regulated. I mean, I, I do a lot of work in the pharmaceutical industry and they say, but you know, we're regulated. And I remind them that in the aircraft industry, you know, when Honda launches Honda jet, it had to submit, I think it was, I, I think it was 8 million pages of documentation to the Federal Aviation Administration. Mm -hmm. So, um, it, banks are regulated. I mean, most businesses are in some way regulated. 
Um, and so what we get a lot of excuses. I mean, obviously you want to follow regulations extremely carefully, both the letter and spirit of those regulations, but don't let them become an excuse. But I do find industries vary. I've done some work in financial services and they're just not used to, although find, funny enough, financial services has had a lot of innovation over time. I mean, think about today how you bank versus just 15, 20 years ago. There's been a lot of innovation. Um, and yet a lot of times big financial service institutions struggle with the idea of innovating because they, like many service companies, there's not the equivalent of an R&D group who is responsible for generating technological innovation. And so that, you know, you'll see, you'll see some service industries struggle because they don't have a group that is, it's operating. It's, it's, they have to also innovate. The operators are also responsible for innovating. And so that, that becomes challenging. Although that said, I think lots of service companies have gotten much more comfortable about things like setting up pilots and testing and they're starting to develop the discipline of innovation. But I've tended to find some industries, particularly financial services, has struggled a lot more. And I tell you, there's going to be with things like blockchain and all the things going on in fintech, there's going to be fundamental shifts in that industry in the next five, 10 years. And so if you're a financial service company and you are not really prepared for innovation, it's going to be you're not going to have a bright future. Yeah. Well, last question here. What's next for you in 2019 on the heels of this great new book? I'm trying to get the word out on the book, but the, the research that I'm doing now is builds off of it in some way, but it's all about company growth. And it's actually research that I started, you know, five, six years ago as these things tend to be. But I'm completely obsessed with the question of how and why companies grow and why they stop growing. And it's a, it's, it, it would surprise you, uh, given how important the topic of growth is to senior executives, that very little is known about this. Um, I've been engaging in some very large-scale empirical studies tracking data on U.S. companies from 1963 to now and with, you know, 11,000 firms in the data set, trying to do statistical analyses. I've been doing a lot of case writing on this, trying to understand the dynamics of firm growth, uh, doing some theory work as well. My course at Harvard Business School, so this is a great laboratory for me to flesh out my ideas as I try them on my MBA students and I learn from them. I have a course, a second year course called Managing Growth, and I'm right in the middle of that uh, now. Uh, and so I, I think that the manage, the whole issue of growth is, I, I wish I could say it's just the 2019 project, but my sense is it's going to be 2019, 20, 21, and 22, and maybe there'll be a book or two in 20, 24, 25. There's, it's just a massive amount of, the more you get in, the more I get into this topic, the more I realize just how rich and interesting it is and how poorly understood it is. And I've been at it for several years now and, and just, just really, it's a, it's, it's a, it's an intellectual gold mine. And I'm hoping I'll be able to say some things that are really important, not just theoretically for uh, scholars of, of economics and organizations, but also for practitioners. Wonderful. Well, we're grateful that you spent the time to, to chat with us and, and give us the inside scoop on, on creative construction and what you've got going on in the future regarding growth. You know, as, as much as, as we don't know about it, it, we're, we're glad you're, you're giving us the answers. Well, I hope we'll have something to say. It might be, maybe not all the answers, but hopefully a couple answers. Thanks for joining us, Gary. Thank you. Yep. Bye bye. Thank you so much for listening to Minds Worth Meeting. As usual, we appreciate your tuning in. We look forward to the future of Professor Pisano's research on growth, so stay tuned for that. Find Professor Gary Pisano online 
at gpisano.com. That's his website. On Twitter at MotoGP61 and at sternspeakers.com slash speaker slash Gary dash Pisano. As we wrap up this season, now is the perfect time to leave us a review on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Google Play. Your feedback is important to us. Please do that if you enjoyed these episodes. And then share Minds Worth Meeting with your network. Find and follow us on Twitter at Stern Strategy and at Stern Speakers. And you'll find Stern Strategy Group on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram. And if there are topics or industries that you're most interested in learning about that you haven't heard on the show or that you want to hear more of, please send an email to mindsworthmeeting at sternstrategy.com or reach out to us on any of our social media pages and let us know what interests you or what your company's challenges are. And make sure to subscribe so you're the first to know about new episodes. Thanks again for listening to Minds Worth Meeting. I'm your host, Whitney Jennings. Until next time, have an amazing summer.